Please turn to Hosea, Hosea chapter 10, as we continue our evening meeting, our series rather, in this series of Hosea's talks to the northern tribe of Israel. He's, he often refers to Judah as well. Judah must be listening in here as well, but his focus is primarily Israel, the northern bit, uh, when the whole nation split into two, uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Hosea chapter 10, that's on page 756. I'm going to read all of it. We're going to take a sort of a high-level view of the chapter. We're not going to get stuck into every single verse. That would be too much for us, but we're going to sort of fly at 10,000 feet over this chapter. Let's hear God's word again. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words with empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth-Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame. And Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah. When I please, I will discipline them. A nation shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plough. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and reign righteousness upon you. You have ploughed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, Therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed, as Shalman destroyed Bath, Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us this evening. 
Lord, we thank you that we have an anchor. We have Jesus. And so as we look at our chapter here this evening, we pray we won't lose sight of our Savior, the one who said, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, help us find that rest afresh tonight in our King, our great King, for we ask in his name. Amen. Well, last time when we were looking at Hosea, we noted in chapter 9 how the Lord is, in a sense, reminiscing on how things used to be. Verse 10 allowed us that glimpse of the, the tender heart of God as he reflects on how he first, as it were, met his wife, Israel. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. The language that Hosea uses here is meant to convey a true joy, a real delight in the Lord as he reflects on his people. Grapes in the wilderness give that sense of refreshment and pleasure. You imagine walking through a, a hot and barren land and you come across a lovely bunch of grapes. How wonderful, how refreshing. This is how Israel was to the Lord. First fruit in its first season gives that sense of excitement. It's the first fruit. It's the very beginning. What will they become? It's a wonderful sense of excitement at the beginning of this relationship between God and his people. Those sorts of scenes of reminiscing, there are actually four of them in these chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. These scenes give us an idea, the sense of God looking back in time and reflecting on what Israel used to be like. So in chapter 9, verse 10, when Israel was like the grapes and the first fruit. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1, when Israel was a luxuriant vine. Chapter 10, verse 11, when Israel was a trained calf. Chapter 11, verse 1, when Israel was a child. When people think of Hosea, that's the chapter they tend to jump into. Chapter 11, the last of those four scenes. But those four pictures, as we've already seen with the first one, the grapes and the first fruit, they create this tension. They convey to us a tension in the heart of the Lord between the past and the present, between the sense of joy that there was in the past to the pain of the present as the Lord laments his people. He sees their idolatry, their unfaithfulness, and he compares that with how they once were at the beginning when they said back at the covenant, at the beginning of the covenant, everything the Lord has said we will do if only they would say that now. It's as though he says. Well, this week we're looking at two more of those four pictures. Again, wanting to appreciate the heart of our God and how Sin grieves the heart of our God. That's what we have tried to keep reminding ourselves as we've gone through this book. It's not just a matter of transgressing a law, which it is when we sin. We hurt the heart of God. That comes out in this whole book, how we grieve the tender heart of a father who loves us. Well, the first picture then is in chapter 10, verse 1, the luxuriant 
vine. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. This is how the ESV presents it in the present tense. Israel is that yields. Those are present tense verbs. The NIV is the only translation to put it in the past tense. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. I don't know why that is. My computer software didn't allow me to get into the Greek or, yeah, no, the Hebrew. Uh, it doesn't go down that deep. Uh, I don't know why it is or if it matters at all, really, but in terms of reminiscing, in terms of reflecting back, then arguably the past tense of the NIV makes more sense. But the point is that Israel is referred to as a vine, which if you look elsewhere in Scripture, this is often how Israel is depicted of being a vine plant, a plant that was chosen by God, planted by the Lord in the promised land, and then uh, cared for, looked after, tended by the vine keeper, the vine dresser. Psalm 80 verse 8 tells us, you brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. It's not being horticultural, he's talking of Israel, the people. Jeremiah 2, 21, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? So Israel, the vine, had been planted by the Lord. He had cared for her, looked after her, provided for her. She was a luxuriant vine, yielding fruit. And here Hosea links that fruit with economic prosperity. When Hosea begins his ministry, I've said this before, both Israel and Judah were experiencing a time of peace and prosperity. Down south in Judah was Uzziah, who was a decent king, generally decent king. And up north was Jeroboam II. And during both their reigns, there was what we often hear, maybe not so much in the UK, but economic growth. <laughs> there was growth happening in these countries. People were prospering. It was the good life, as it were. And Hosea tells us here that as their economy grew, so did their sin. Verse 1, the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. So rather than looking at what had come in and the great economy, you know, such a harvest, we'll have to build more barns, bigger barns, you know, rather than thanking God for all that he had provided them, Israel was using her wealth to build loads of altars, loads of shrines to the pagan gods. They even upgraded their pillars, a bit like those Native American totem poles. Israel had a history of making pillars to pagan gods. There was one particular one, the Asherah, which was some sort of disgusting pagan fertility symbol. So, yes, prosperity had made them naturally wealthier, but spiritually poorer. Prosperity had been the means of testing them. And verse 2 tells us their heart was found false. 
Their prosperity also gave them a false confidence. Verses 3 and 4, I won't go into detail, but verse 3 seems to suggest they had no fear either of God or of losing their king. What do we need a king for? They say, we've got all this money. We're coping fine without one. Verse 4 seems to be something to do with judicial corruption, bribes being paid, empty oaths, false judgments being made. So there is this underlying theme of economic prosperity and how well God's people, how well anyone copes with wealth. We often talk about the question of suffering and how suffering and trials and affliction can shake someone's faith. We've already been looking at that in 1 Peter. We've seen in 1 Peter 1, 6, and 7 how the various trials they faced were designed to test the genuineness of their faith. But I wonder, would we ever consider wealth as a kind of trial? Would we ever think of being wealthy as something that could shake someone's faith? That's certainly what Israel had been warned of back in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when Moses is telling the people they're about the richness of the promised land. He, he warns them to take care, verse 11. Take care for when you get in there, lest you forget the Lord your God. Moses describes the scenario of them getting into this land of milk and honey, this place where everything is already there for them, and they fill themselves, and they're full and fat and at ease, and then they begin to think to themselves in verse 17, I achieved all of this wealth by my own strength, by my own ability. Who needs God? And so they might forget him. They might then disobey him. And, and Moses warns them in verse 19, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, just as they're doing here in Hosea's day, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the warning that crops up again and again, that God is saying to his people, if you let my blessing of you go to your head or to your heart, there will be consequences. But of course, Israel wouldn't listen. Jeremiah twenty two twenty one. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. And this has been your way from your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. And here in Hosea's day, he finds yet again the same problem. There he is describing their idolatry in verses 5 and 6 and how they pathetically mourn for their calf idol at Beth Heaven. Remember, this is the God who supposedly provides for them. And yet they're trembling with fear because their impotent, useless God is about to be carried off into Assyria. And they're frightfully terrified and afraid for it. They're so silly. Sin makes us silly. Sin, we don't think right when we're in sin. 
we can be in the middle of something and somebody would come up to it, it sometimes takes somebody to come up to us and say do you see what you're doing here as Hosea is doing with the people of Israel do you actually see what you're doing you are worshiping this golden calf as the one who provides for you as the one who's looking after you supposedly and here you are afraid because this God is going to be carried away to Assyria then why are you trusting in it oh I never thought of that really we're so blinded by sin sometimes but judgment will come verses 2 and 8 Judgment will come on all their many altars, all their elaborate pillars. God will destroy them like you would find ruins in a wood, years old, hidden by overgrown vegetation. These many altars, these pillars will become overgrown with thorns and thistles. And because in verses 9 and 10, the core problem of what happened at Gibeah still continues, the madness of sin, the selfishness of sin, then God is poised to bring the ultimate, the final discipline upon them. When I please, he says, whenever it fits my plan, another translation puts it, I will discipline them. And how will he do it? Nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity you see that don't miss that whatever it is we are in the situation where by the end of this year the the great superpower of this world the USA is going to have a presidential presidential election and it is a superpower Europe depends on USA and all of that whatever we may think and yet here we're reminded that Whatever it is that the nations of the world may be doing in terms of their politics, whatever they may be doing in terms of their inter international relations, but look how God gathers them whenever he wants to. And he uses them in whichever way he wants to. He gathers them and then he disperses them whenever he has use for them in his primary concern for his people. But there is a lesson here for us. How whilst we think, we would hope, that having greater wealth would make life better for us, and for sure it would, to some degree, yes, it would, obviously, it, wealth pays the bills, wealth put foods on the table and so forth and all of that, but there is this, this hidden worm in wealth. We think of Jonah and how the Lord raised up a worm to eat away at the plant. There is a hidden worm in wealth that eats away at faith. It can eat away at someone's faith and dependency upon the Lord. And since the measure of wealth is always relative to who or where we are, then all of us really are to watch out for this worm, whether whatever your level of income is, but it's all relative. All of us need to look out for the worm in wealth. Remember those parables that the Lord Jesus talked of, the parable of the soils, for example, and the seed that fell among thorns. In Luke 8, 14, as for what fell among the thorns, 
they are those who hear, they hear the gospel, but as they go on their way, they are choked, choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Or think of what he says in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or finally, Luke 18, verse 24, Jesus said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, these are things to reflect on, things to bring before God in our own personal prayers. The next general theme you see in verses 11 to 15, and this picture as the Lord reflects back on how Israel was, we see the picture of Israel as being a trained calf. And clearly, as you read those verses, they are full of farming metaphors uh, of a calf or a heifer. I don't know what the difference is. Somebody come and tell me afterwards of a, an animal, a calf threshing, of an animal, a calf plowing, breaking up fallow ground. We read of sowing and reaping and watering from rain showers. Why is Hosea now using these metaphors? Well, Probably, again, because of Israel's idolatry and her fixation with Baal. Baal was very much so a fertility god, a god who supposedly blessed everything to do with fertility from the womb to the field to the livestock. And so God reflects again on how things used to be in their relationship, and he thinks of his Israel as a trained calf. In other words, she was like a useful animal. Here was someone trained by God who gladly served him. She didn't have to wear a yoke to carry out the heavy labor, but instead she had loved to thresh. That was the separation from the grain, uh, the grain from the chaff. This was when the animal could freely eat. It's a life of ease, as it were. This is the picture here that Hosea is giving us. Well, again, that blessing from God had gone to their head. The blessing from God, the privilege of being given a promised land, a land already flowing with milk and honey where there was little work to do, actually. Since the Lord would bless the land, the Lord would make it prosper. That blessing they had taken advantage of. And so now Hosea tells them, a yoke will be fitted but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plough. Jacob must harrow for himself. What does he mean by these terms? Well, he's using these metaphors to talk about the heart. They're to plough their hearts. They're to break up the fallow ground of their hearts. And they're to sow in their hearts the good seed of righteousness. For if they do that, then there will be a harvest of steadfast love. That will be from God towards them. 
if they act righteously, if they pursue godliness, then, continuing this metaphor, he may come and rain righteousness upon you. It's wonderful language the way Hosea puts it. But they must seek him. They can't expect this. They can't simply say, well, aren't we Israel? Haven't we got the temple? Aren't we religious people? Isn't that enough? No, they must seek him. It's like the call back in chapter 6. We're told here in verse 12, it is the time to seek the Lord. Now is the time to seek the Lord. That is the offer Isaiah gave in his day. Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, and he will freely pardon that's such an ancient promise, and yet it's the promise for today still. That if we seek the Lord while he may be found, while there is still this day of opportunity, this day of turning back to God through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, we are promised that this God will have mercy on that person. This God who is too holy to look upon our sin, who hates our sin, yet if we humble ourselves and come back to him through Jesus Christ, who bore our sin on the cross, we are promised here he will freely pardon. There's that word free again. He will freely pardon. We don't have to pay for it. We don't have to contribute to it. God, this God we have so grossly offended with our sin, he simply says, bring your sin to me. Trust in my son Jesus Christ and I will freely pardon you. What a wonderful transaction for anyone to take advantage of. But look at Israel. Israel has become somewhat hardened in her way. For too long, Israel, in verse 13, has plowed iniquity. They have planted wickedness. And so what they are now reaping as a result is just evil. Their land is rife with evil. We have seen that in our previous chapters. Now, rather than trusting in God, they are trusting in their own way, verse 13. So now she eats the fruits of that. She, fruit, uh, she eats the fruit of lies, the fruit of deception. And again, we have seen, haven't we, how she put her trust in foreign kings, but they took advantage of her. Rather than pursuing truth, pursuing God, they went their own way and now they are paying for it. This happens, you see. You get what you sow. It's maybe time, maybe in a few months' time, to be sowing things in our gardens, in our allotments or our vegetable plots. We look at the front of the packet and we expect to get what we sow, don't we? You don't sow a sunflower and get a cucumber. You get what you sow. That is the theme that often comes up in Scripture. 
You think of what Paul writes in Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, he says. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There is a natural correlation between what we live for and what we get in return for that life lived. That is why when we think of how am I to live this Christian life, it is often about doing, as Israel's told to do here, to plow up our hearts, to do the hard heart work and to, to break up the old habits that have become ingrained in us before we came to faith. We lived certain ways. We followed certain paths. They became ingrained in us. They became characteristic of us. But now, having come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're called to plow all of that up, to dig up the stones and pull them out and plant seeds of righteousness. Even a conscience that has become somewhat hardened by being repeatedly walked over, repeatedly overruled when God had tenderly tried to warn you, when God in his love had tried to draw you away from sin, but you walked over it. And so time has passed and your conscience has become somewhat hardened. It's actually a very dangerous thing to do that, to say no to God. And when you say no enough times to God, then maybe it might be just too hard to come back to God. But our hope is that with honest prayer, with sincere repentance, with childlike trust, with this plowing and sowing, when we determinately put off those old sinful habits and begin by God's grace and according to Scripture we put on new godly habits, then we can expect this reign of righteousness upon our lives. For Israel, though, verse 13, she has plowed iniquity and so she is reaping injustice. And because we're told that she's trusted in her economic wealth, because we're told she's trusted in the multitude of your warriors, in the number of tanks and the number of F-35s and all those other things that we hear of in the military today, what is God going to do? He will bring the tumult of war. When you look over into verse 14, there's someone's mentioned there, Shalman. And no one knows exactly who he was. No one knows exactly what happened at Beth Arbel. But we have to presume that when Hosea mentions that name, they would have known what that meant. We get a glimpse of what happened. Hosea reminds them of something of the horror of what happened there. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. And this is what Israel is warned with. Thus it shall be done to you. Your fortresses, 
your military will be destroyed. The fair and the beautiful among you, the children, the mothers will be destroyed. Their king, their leader at the break of dawn will be utterly cut off. And yet, why is Hosea saying all of this? We must not forget the other side of this. Why say any of this? It's that they might turn, you see. This hasn't happened yet, you see. God tells them this is what will happen unless you come back to me. So behind all of this warning, this urging from Hosea is still this passionate heart of the Lord which will blossom in the next chapter, chapter 11 we'll look at. God willing, next Lord's Day evening. Still is, is this beating heart of a betrayed husband, a, a God, a Savior, a Redeemer who saved his people, who, who brought to himself a wife, but who she betrayed him. She left him for others. He longs for her to come home. He longs for her to return to him and, and to know his love. It is the time to seek the Lord. And that is our time still, as we, we measure ourselves against these images. Tonight even is the time to respond, to seek the Lord, to return however much, but to return from however far away we have been, but to return to the one who loves us, covenantly loves us, and promises to show us mercy and promises to freely forgive us again tonight. Well, let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for this chapter and what we have been reminded of in it, Lord, the dangers of the blessing of wealth and the dangers, Lord, of, of going our own way and trusting in our own means rather than trusting in you. We thank you, Lord, for preserving this letter, this book of Hosea's, and we pray, Lord, that his burden would be our burden too. Give us grace then, we pray. Help us to see ourselves in this mirror. And Lord, wherever we are amiss in this, wherever far off we are from where we ought to be, please give us grace, Lord. However hardened our conscience may be, however ingrained wrong habits maybe have become in our lives, Lord, please be gracious to us. Help us to recognize where we're wrong and help us to admit that, to acknowledge that and to come back to you. God of heaven, hear our prayers and thank you that we have Jesus, our Savior, the one who bore our sin, the one who suffered for all our sin. We thank you that that King, our King, was cut off for our sake. That through him, through his death and resurrection, we might be brought near to you, our Father. Hear us then, we pray, Father, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.